Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Hockey. Uh, this week, we have a very special guest that we're really excited to get into, um, and it is Haley Salvian. So Haley is a staff writer for The Athletic, covering the Ottawa Senators. She previously wrote for The Athletic Toronto as a general assignment reporter and spent time at CBC News in Toronto and Saskatchewan. And so this week, we're going to be talking everything Ottawa Senators and and her career. So starting with the background of her career, uh, prospects of Ottawa, Ottawa management, and then the future of the Ottawa Senators and whether or not they can survive in the city. And so we'll get into all these topics on this week's podcast. Great. So awesome. So Haley, welcome to the show. Um, so first off, we kind of just wanted to get a little bit about your uh, background. So I was hoping you can kind of walk us through your story from uh, kind of graduating university all the way up to uh, kind of working for The Athletic. I think that your story can be really interesting. It can help a lot of our uh, a lot of our listeners who are always asking us questions about how do you, how you can they can uh, work in the NHL, how they can become a writer, or just get into media and sports in general. So I think you can have really good insight. And uh, yeah, take it away. Yeah, well, thanks first for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Um, gets me away from my Netflix. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting when you ask questions like that because I'm sure if you asked, you know, all the writers at the Athletic, um, the newer age ones and the older, I think we've all probably had different paths to getting to where we are. Um, so for me, I mean, I always knew that I wanted to get into sports reporting. Um, I think the first time I ever 
you know, decided this is what I was going to do. You know, I grew up on, you know, hockey, golf, football. So um, I remember really early on latching on to people like Aaron Andrews and, and Christine Simpson, Kate Burness. Those were kind of the first women in sports that I really saw on television. Um, so I knew from like really early age that I wanted to do sports and, and probably particularly sports broadcast. Um, so that kind of made my decision to go to journalism school pretty easy. Um, I remember actually, um, I was a, I was a big Penguins fan when I was a kid, which upsets a lot of Sens fans. Um, my mom's <laughs> French Canadian. She loves Mario Lemieux. So um, we always kind of liked the Penguins in my house. Um, and I remember when I was, I forget how old I was, but I was pretty young. And I remember we actually met Sidney Crosby and I was like, I think I'm going to go to like school in Halifax. I'm going to go to Dalhousie. <laughs> and I don't know why I even brought that up or like why I would meet Sidney Crosby and be like, I think I'm going to go to university at Dalhousie. Um, I lied to Sidney Crosby. I did not go to Dalhousie University. I ended up at you. Ryerson. <laughs> I know. I feel bad, but I uh, I ended up at Ryerson because they had a pretty great um, journalism program. It's very hands-on. Um, you know, from day one, they actually send you out in the field to to actually work in journalism. So um, I went to that journalism program, and my kind of like first um, job in the industry was actually in news. So I got an internship at CBC News. Um, so I started there as an associate producer. Um, it was pretty cool. I was working in news, but they knew I really liked sports. I made that very clear when I started. Um, so I think it was my last day on the job. And they sent me to go to Wayne Gretzky's like whiskey grand opening at the LCBO. Um, so it was like my first real day in the field. And it was That's really you cool. know, with Gretzky, and it was actually it was the day after Austin Matthews scored four goals against Sens. <laughs> Great debut. day. Great and day. I yeah, depends who you ask, but I remember asking everyone's asking about the whiskey and what does it taste like? What's their flavor profile? And I was just like, what do you think about Austin Matthews? So um, <laughs> it was like it was super cool, and I think um, having that experience like right off the bat as an intern um, was really influential for me. I was like, you know, this is what I want to do all the time, and I think at first I was a little worried, like that's Wayne Gretzky. Like, how do you put that kind of fandom aside? And once you realize like how badly you want to work in that industry, like I wasn't weeping over Wayne Gretzky, so I was like, this is a good start. Like I didn't. I was very professional, it was fine. Um, so I ended up getting hired. That was like a, a tangent, but I ended up getting hired at CBC after. And then um, I started working, you know, rolling the teleprompter while I was still in school after my classes. And um, I stayed there. I got into web, I got into radio, and then I moved to Saskatchewan for television. Um, but I still always knew that sports is what I wanted to do because I was working as a news reporter. Um, so on the side, I was working for the Oshawa Generals in the Ontario Hockey League. Um, I was their in arena and digital host. So I was, you know, working full time in news, but I had that Jen's job on the side to get my foot in the door in hockey and get my foot in the door in the, in a different kind of broadcast world. Um, and then when I was in Saskatchewan, I was doing local TV news, um, and I pitched a freelance story to the athletic. And it was about Natalie Achanwa and the crazy life of a women's basketball player. Um, they took the story. They liked the story. And that story was kind of the catalyst for my position at the Athletic Toronto when I first started last year. Because um, the story did pretty well. And I think 
they saw a, a place where, hey, we don't really have that many stories like this on the website. Um, so they kind of took that and ran with it and they offered me a job. Uh, and like I said, I was in Saskatchewan wow. at the time. So I left immediately and came back to Toronto. Um, and yeah, I covered women's hockey in the Marlies for the most part. Um, and then there was, you know, they wanted to expand to have a full-time writer in Ottawa and, um, they offered me the position. So I ramble a lot. That was like a really long winded <laughs> story, but that's kind of how that happened for me. It was, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of really great opportunities, but I also worked really hard to, to get those opportunities as well. No, that was, that was a great story. Actually, that was actually really interesting. <laughs> um, cause we interviewed Harmon Dial and you know, it's kind of interesting listening to his story and listening to your story and kind of hearing the parallels between both of you. And I find that really interesting. And I think, uh, I think that can bring a lot of value to people listening as well, who are trying to get into sports. Um, so it, so what kind of advice do you have for people that are trying to get into sports media and stuff like that? Obviously you're around, you know, hundreds of people within sports and they all have different jobs and different careers and stuff like that. But do you have any kind of, you know, general principles and stuff like that you think people should follow if they kind of want to get into the industry? Yeah, I would say that you need to know what you want for sure. Um, I, I think that this is an incredibly, it's an incredibly rewarding career path, but it's also very difficult. Um, and I, I just don't know if it's something that you're going to have a lot of like fulfillment and success in if you're not all in, if that makes sense. You know, it. there's days where it's really tough. You know, it, it takes a lot to get into the industry. And once you're in it, it is pretty hard. Um, but if it's what you really want to do, then it makes it all worth it. Um, to get in, I would say network. It's it's so incredibly important to, to build that network for yourself and just talk to people, get as much advice as you can. Um, you never know uh, what conversation could be that catalyst for a job. You know, if I never pitched that freelance story, I might not be where I am right now. I might still be working in news or you know, in Oshawa. And, you know, I pitched that freelance story to one of my professors from university, actually. So that's one thing that I always say to students who are still in school is don't take your profs for granted, um, especially at Ryerson University. A lot of them still work in the industry and they could get you a job. They could just write you a great reference letter. Um, Sean Fitzgerald was was that person for me. Um, I actually almost failed my first assignment in his class and then he ended up uh, getting me a job. So it was like a very, uh, you know, most improved player kind of thing for me, I would say. But, um, you know, don't be afraid to lean on people. Um, there's a lot of great people in this industry who, um, you know, I don't go and like pester them, but I, there's a lot of people who are willing to help and, and they're great people um, and just work hard um, and try to find as many opportunities as possible. Cause um, you know, everyone always says there's no jobs in journalism and, um, it's, it's really hard to get into, but, um, I forget who it was, but I heard when I was, you know, in school that there's always going to be opportunities for the right people. Um, so mm -hmm. if you work really hard and put yourself in a position to get those opportunities, then you're going to be able to find success. Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. Cause I think that has a lot of parallels with what we've kind of been doing too, where we've been all trying to get into the industry as well. Uh, like yeah. this podcast, for example, we got we just got picked up actually by a podcasting company, a sports media company. So that's kind of the reason why we've been trying to bring on more guests and everything like that. But I think that's a really interesting mm -hmm. comparison to make about making connections, about just putting yourself out there and stuff like that. And that's kind of a lot of the reason why we started this page. But so you've been working with the senders for what, a year now, right? 
Yeah, this is my first season. So I started yeah. in, in, I guess, September. September, yeah. So, so far, what are kind of your favorite memories about covering the Senators or, you know, funniest moments, all that kind of stuff, kind of the inside? Because you, you probably get a lot of access working for the Athletic and covering uh, the team so closely. Yeah, so, you know, I've been around the team on a full-time basis, you know, with the exception of the social distancing and, and isolation uh, since September. Um, so I get a lot of, um, yeah, like I get the same amount of access that all the other beat writers will. So um, if it's a game day, you'll go to the morning skate for either the home or the visitors team. And um, you go to practice every day, you go to games. Um, and yeah, I mean, favorite moments, I would just say like the first game that I covered was pretty special for me. Um, like I said, I've known that this is what I wanted to do for a really long time. So um, that was really big moment for me was, you know, actually covering an NHL game uh, for the first time. And, and it came in waves like that throughout the season. Um, my first game that I ever covered at MSG, you know, I walked up that infamous ramp that the players talk about is, you know, a hell walk and like my calves were on fire when I walked up that. So that was like a, an NHL moment for me. Um, some other favorites, I think, um, for anyone who would read my stuff, um, I am a, you know, I'm a beat writer, but I'm not as um, enthralled with the day to day. I, I'm more so um, interested in, in telling the the human stories and, yeah. um, you know, that the features. So probably one of my favorite things that happened this season was um, the stories that I've written about Mark Borowiecki, um, the the one when I sat down for coffee with with Mark and Tara before the trade deadline, and Tara was about eight months, eight and a half months pregnant, um, and her due date was ten days before the deadline, and there was a lot of anxiety for them as a family. You know, they're about to have their first child, and they didn't know if Mark was going to be shipped off to Winnipeg or Colorado, you know, wherever it may be. Uh, really far from Ottawa. And it was really special for me that they opened up about that anxiety and that experience. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of trust for a player to open up about something so personal and have their wife there as well. And, and for them to open up about that story to me was really, really special. Um, you know, just because I, you don't work, you, it's, I don't want to say like I was working really hard to make the relationship to get that story. Um, yeah. But, you know, being an NHL writer, there is a lot of relationship building. Um, and so that was, that was, I was really happy about that because um, like I said, they trusted me to tell that story. And um, that was kind of the first time that someone had really um, kind of had that connection to, you know, be able to tell something that in my opinion is really important. Um, there's people on the other side of the trade <laughs> deadline, you know, we see so many of the lists of trade bait and mm -hmm. um, who's going to get moved, who's not going to get moved, who's, you know, the biggest prize, who you should be careful about, like who's the don't touch. Like those are human beings with, with personal stories. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what's important to me to tell. Um, so that was probably my favorite thing that I've done this season for sure. Seeing yeah, the I think it's so interesting aspect. the way – sorry, Martin? Just seeing the human aspect of the game, a lot of people, a lot of fans especially, kind of forget that. They forget that mm -hmm. it's not just a, yeah. they're not just there to amuse you. They're a person too. <laughs> yeah, and, well, getting to, and getting to see that and share that it, it was probably the highlight of my season.
Hmm. Yeah, and especially think- the year after all the kind of off ice drama that happened, it's nice to see that kind of change. And especially with the Bobby Ryan story, um, yeah. there's there a lot more positive I felt around the senators this year, uh, which was nice to see, even though obviously we have that rivalry, but you never want to see all the kind of toxic behavior that was happening off the ice. It's just, it's not fun to see for anyone. Yeah, definitely. And, and Bobby, that story is another one that, um, you know, I think when I was like live tweeting it, usually I try to stay very professional. But when he had the hat trick, I think I dropped a few F-bombs like in the because <laughs> it was just like a moment where I think all of us up there were like, is this actually happening right now? Yeah. Like, as yeah. a journalist, you crave stories like that. And, and it just kind of it wrote itself. But in the same token, when I sat down to write the story, I felt so much pressure and I was like, I don't know how to, you know, encapsulate everything that just happened um, because yeah, it was. How do you do that justice, right? Yeah, I was like, I yeah. don't, I have no idea how to touch this. <laughs> but do you, do you get the work. feeling that Ottawa, like Ottawa, always seems to have a, those like good feeling stories about them, and they like they had the pesky sends hashtag for a long time, yeah. and still kind of do. Um, do you get the feeling like Ottawa is more of like a homely team than other? NHL teams might be? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's difficult just because it is my first year being in the league, you know, in this way. I think so, yeah. Like, I think the fan base, um, it's a bit more passionate. And like you said, it's a bit more homey, especially when you Mm -hmm. interact with everyone on Twitter. It kind of seems like everyone's following each other and interacting with each other. Um, Whereas in maybe some of the, the bigger markets, um, there's like, um, you know, different sections of the fan base mm-hmm. who are all quite different. I find the sense mm-hmm. fan base um, is a bit closer in that sense. Um, I guess you could say they've been brought together by shared trauma. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe be so blunt, but, and I don't, that's just like diff- any kind of trauma. I'm not making a shot at any one thing, but maybe that's what it is. They've all been through a lot and, um, but they, you know, they've stuck through it. And I think, yeah, that probably makes them a bit more, you know, homey feeling in that sense. And now we'll be back after a word from our sponsors. So I know you guys are all bored and have nothing to do. So with currently no NBA, NHL, or even MLB games going on, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you're wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, sells hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even Nathan's hot dog eating contest. And it's open 24 hours a day and it's all online. So you can go to betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Guys, are you looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. 
Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-CHEW.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Yep, Martin, you had that poll that you were going to mention about um, <laughs> the, the beat writers. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a poll. I'm not sure if you have heard of this Instagram uh, Twitter account. It's called Naftali Clinton, and he's running. Yeah, I uh, saw the bracket challenge, yeah. Yeah, you're currently in uh, the semifinals against your your fellow uh, uh, athletic Against reporter. Graham, right? Yes. <laughs> You have the yeah. chance to go up again, or Ian. <laughs> All right, so everyone listening to this has to go vote for Haley then, because she's the one that you know joined the podcast. So we'll definitely uh, tweet that out and shout it on our Instagram story. Get everyone to go vote for you. <laughs> but um, yeah, so talking about the human aspect of uh, the senders, I find that so interesting because. The Athletic has so many different voices, right? So, you know, when we were talking to Harmon, he's very analytical. He's very video-oriented. He's very, like, analyzing the team. Not saying he doesn't do human... Yeah, exactly, (laughs) right? So not saying he doesn't do human human interest stories like you do, too, but you guys have such different styles, which I find so Mm -hmm. interesting about The Athletic, too. And then there's guys like, you know, Don Lushizen or Ian Tulloch, more analytical people, and then they have people like you that really kind of bring more the more human aspect, the more emotional aspect to the game, which I really like. And that's kind of why I really like kind of the stories that um, you get into. But uh, Thank you. I mean, since you get a little bit more access to the Ottawa Senators, we kind of wanted to talk a little bit, little bit about the management situation, what's going on there. Obviously, there was a lot of drama over the course of this year with, uh, I want to, correct me if I'm wrong, the president, uh, Jim Little, I want to say his name was. Um, um, he, CEO, but yeah. CEO, sorry, yep. Um, (laughs) There's a whole big mess of a situation that happened over there, and it seems like it doesn't happen all the time with the senators, but it seems like it's a it's a very frequent (laughs) thing where they have a lot of firings and a lot of management turnover. So I was hoping you might be able to give us a little bit of insight into that, if you have any. I don't know. I don't know what you've only been there a year, as you said, so I don't know what kind of insight you do have. But it'd be interesting to kind of hear a little bit about from your perspective, anyways. Yeah, so I mean, the the Jim Little situation certainly was, um, I think, a surprise for everyone. You know, it was uh, in March when he was dismissed, and it was kind of the way we saw it was it was this season of kind of relative calm. Um, You know, on the ice, they were kind of turning into, um, you know, they were turning around the culture. You have this rookie coach in DJ Smith who is, you know, uh, bringing out this really hardworking, maybe throwback to the pesky sense, like you said, and, you know, bringing kind of that positive culture um, on the ice and in the locker room, this kind of like hard workhorse style. Um, and they were still losing some games, but, you know, the fan base actually online seemed kind of happy, you know, the games were entertaining and, you know, you had this new CEO and, you know, things were kind of quiet in that sense. Um, and then, you know, he'd only been on the job for about 54 days um, when it was released that he was dismissed. Um, the initial press release, I believe, from the organization said it was a result of conduct inconsistent with the core values of the SENS in the NHL. Um, and this came after, you know, the Bill Peters um, and, and Jim Montgomery firings or dismissals. Um, so I think the language of the press release maybe um, raised some questions of the nature of what happened. Um, but essentially, you know, it, it wasn't 
the same kind of conflict as, you know, the, the other two scenarios, you know, um, there were points of conflict between Little, um, who was hired as CEO, um, and the owner and governor and Eugene Melnick. Um, and, you know, some other sources had told us, um, my, myself and, and Chris Stevenson, my colleague, that um, there was maybe some other points of conflict with other executives and subordinates within the organization. So it wasn't necessarily just, you know, a head to head between Jim and Eugene. Um, but, you know, later that afternoon, uh, Little did release a press release and he essentially said, I think he said it was on Valentine's Day. Um, Jim and Eugene had a, a disagreement over the phone and it more or less turned into, you know, this kind of screaming match and he had some choice curse words to use against Eugene um, that ultimately led to, to him being dismissed. Um, that's what Jim had said. You know, he kind of said, you know, I got fired because I, you know, cursed the, the owner and Eugene. Um, so obviously there was some tension. I think um, they just had different viewpoints on how things should go moving forward for the future. Um, I think, you know, Jim even said himself, he's a strong-willed person um, Jim had a lot of success with his previous, um, you know, career points. Um, you know, CJ, my colleague, is was really big in golf. He is really big in golf, excuse me. So when Jim was hired, um, a lot of golfers like Graham Dillette and um, people within RBC and the Canadian Open were like, this is huge for the Senators. This is really big because um, Jim was the one who kind of took the RBC Canadian Open and made it into what it is today and, you know, saw Rory McIlroy played in it. You know, you have all these big name golfers actually playing in it now. Um, so it was, it was pretty jarring um, going from this guy is going to be your savior to he's gone in 54 days. Um, and I think it was just a difference of opinions on how things should go moving forward. And uh, that's, that's kind of my inside knowledge on that. So do you think this is more of a slight on Melnick or, because it's it just seems like it's kind of a common thing that's been happening to the senators over the years where all these team issues keep leading back to the ownership within within the Ottawa Senators organization. It kind of just seems to stem from the top and go down. So what what are your kind of takes on Melnick? Obviously there's this huge, you know, Melnick out movement and everything like that. And I think Martin's kind of a little bit of a part of it. Um, so we kind of just wanted to get your thoughts about Melnick and the ownership group there and you know, get your feelings towards them because I think they're it's a very divisive divisive ownership group and I think probably the most divisive organization or, or ownership group in the NHL. Yeah. And I think divisive is probably the, the right word to use. And, um, you know, like I said, this has been my first year on the beat and, you know, the, so the only thing that I've had the firsthand and inside experience, um, has been what happened here with, with Jim Little, um, and his dismissal. So I, I don't know if I want to, you know, speculate or comment too much about what happened in the past. I, I'm obviously aware of it. Um, covering the team, you get the context from mm -hmm. other reporters and such. But um, obviously, fans aren't happy. Um, most fans aren't happy with with the ownership and some of the moves. You know, you see a lot of the low hanging fruit kind of jokes about, you know, the senators wallet and um etc um i think what i would say is you know we did a fan survey on the athletic um and we asked the question you know what is your confidence level in the owner um mm -hmm. and 
60, around 65%, I think, of the fans we surveyed, which was um, about 800, um, had him at, you know, a one out of 10. Um, so if that's <laughs> going to be something that we take the temperature of how fans feel, that's mm-hmm. what we got from doing that survey. Um, me personally, I have not, um, like I said, I haven't experienced a lot of the stuff that happened. Um, and I, I don't think I've had enough conversations with fans to truly say, um, you know, what they're feeling, but, you know, from this survey, I can say that the majority of fans aren't happy. Um, Mm -hmm. but as for, you know, some of the other stuff, I I don't want to be overly speculative just because, um, I'm not an expert in that field at this time. Besides, um, besides the survey, um, I, I listened to you on uh, Keeping Carlson on Sunday. Um, okay. I, I remember them talking about how the one podcaster's mom's friend um, had stopped buying their season tickets. Yeah. And that is actually a huge pattern. I worked at a law firm in Ottawa and all the senior partners that had season tickets like the partner I worked for and stuff, he had season tickets and he no longer had them. And it was all because Melnick, um, I get like, because season tickets holders, you have a meeting and stuff, right? With the ownership. And I guess those meetings weren't going as these people would want them to. And it was kind of, it's kind of turned to like er everyone is, Melnick. Melnick isn't great um, and not running the sense in a you know d- the direction that you want him to be and the big thing is like money obviously like you just said um, he did he did turn that around with uh, the whole Shabbat signing and the Colin White signing showing that he is willing to spend money to keep young younger guys which is kind of the reason this year was also on the up and ups it started on the up and ups they brought in dj smith they signed shabbat they um signed colin white to both long-term pretty big money contracts and you're Mm -hmm. like oh they're actually going to willing to do something for the team um and then yeah yeah and and i mean that shabbat contract eight times eight is not insignificant um but yeah, I totally understand what what you mean and, and how fans feel. I mean, I think there's a, I, I think in my story, I think I called it a complicated history. Um, and some fans <laughs> definitely didn't like the the word complicated. Cause, but for me, I think where I feel like it's complicated is, you know, at least with the survey, you know, fans want to see the senators succeed. Fans seem to actually have some confidence in, in Pierre Dorian. They have confidence in DJ. They're excited about their players and their prospects, but then it's the ownership that they're not, you know, um, kind of fans I, of. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. I've I've um, I think if you have confidence in Dorian, it's only because he's had the job so long now that he's kind of erased, <laughs> erased, <laughs> or whited out some of the mistakes he made back in the past. Um, and he's kind of learned um, from them a bit, maybe. Um, yeah, I would did, say that his experience as a scout um, certainly has, shows. Yes. Like, I think he drafts yeah. 
quite well um, looking through his draft history as, you know, the general manager. I don't know if there's been too many blunders. I know a lot of times um, in the, you know, instant moment of the draft, like I remember seeing people so enraged about, you know, Brady Kachuk and guys like Shane Pinto, you know, what's he doing grabbing these guys. But, you know, after the world juniors, I don't think there's that many people questioning Shane Pinto's ability and no one's really questioning Brady Kachuk. So I think where a lot of that confidence in Pierre stems from is his long history as a scout and the way that he's used that to build a really good prospect pool for this team. Yeah, for That's sure. That's a perfect transition because we <laughs> wanted to talk to you about a bunch of different prospects. So we kind of wanted to get your uh, thoughts on the goalie situation first. So I do know that you talked a little bit about this with uh, keeping Carlson, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts about the goaltending prospects that Ottawa has in their system, essentially. So, you know, just like one minute or two minute breakdowns on each prospect and kind of just give us the rundown on them if you, if you can. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, they actually have a pretty good, um, a pretty big prospect pool in the crease. Um, I'm not a goaltending expert by any means. So I, you know, I'm not, you know, like a former NHL goalie who <laughs> I don't can think like break is. it down that well. <laughs> yeah. no, nobody knows what's going on with goalies. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think it's, um, it's pretty interesting. You know, Marcus Hogberg, I, I don't think the plan was for him to be in the NHL as much as he was this year. Um, but he certainly showed that he has the ability to be uh, an NHL goaltender. I think, um, you know, there was maybe some instances where, um, you know, maybe he let in a bad goal and it maybe took him a couple extra shots or, or what have you to to get that comfort level back in the crease. Um, but he's young, like he's still he's still working at it. But I, I do believe that the plan for next year, at least, is to have that goalie tandem of um, Anders Nilsson and Marcus Hogberg in the crease. Um, so he's kind of their number one when it comes to um, goalie prospects. Um, where I think it kind of gets interesting is you kind of have this um, battle in the American League that maybe people didn't expect to happen last season uh, between Joey Decord and uh, Philip Gustafson. I think, you know, when Gus came in um, by a trade with Pittsburgh, I think they ha- there was some pretty lofty expectations. I think they wanted you know, everyone kind of stamped it to be, you know, the, the Hoberg Gustafson pair of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had a pretty, I had a really great conversation with um, the Belleville coach, Troy Mann, because if you kind of just look at the season that um, even just at the beginning of the year that Gus and Hogberg had in the American league, neither of them are really stopping too many pucks. Um, Hogberg obviously turned it around and, and had a pretty good season in the national hockey league, but Um, Gus kind of struggled right off the hop and, um, you know, Troy will tell you and and same with Pierre grew from, um, you know, the, the Senators goalie coach, you know, when Gus came in in his rookie year, his first year pro last season, I think the plan was for him to play in the ECHL. Um, that's usually what, um, the organizations will tend to do with rookie goaltenders. They'll put them in the ECHL, let them just play, get as many games, Um, It's a bit more of an erratic game. You're going to face way more shots. The D's not necessarily going to be as good as obviously the American League and the National Hockey League. So um, it really just you get peppered with shots and and you kind of work through it um, and you just play games. Um, So that was the plan for Gus. But then they had so many injuries. There was 
um, I think like in the Hogberg injury in, in Belleville and then that kind of forced Gus back up to the American Hockey League. So I think his stats will show that he hasn't had the smoothest transition to the pro game. Um, he let in, I think, like almost 3.25 goals against and he had an under 900 save percentage. Um which if he, you want him to be your number two guy, um, you know, the numbers aren't great. Um, you know, from a wins and losses standpoint, he had a good season. I think he only lost six games in regulation. Um, but Belleville was, you know, one of the highest scoring teams in the American Hockey League with almost like four goals a game. Um, so I, I think there would indicate that there's still a ways to go for Gus. Um, that's kind of my long-winded way of saying. I think his development path just got deterred a little bit last season. He didn't get to go to the ECHL and play those games and, and really develop the way that I think the organization wanted him to. Um, but he's only 21 years old. Um, he's got a ton of time. Um, and, and kind of where you see an example of that system working is in Joey Decord, who went to the ECHL this season as a rookie pro. Um, I think he let in. I think Troy told me he um, got scored on. He let in like six goals or nine goals or something oh like Troy was like he got lit up in the ECHL one night but he played through it um mm. he got his games he played through it and then by December he got called up to the American Hockey League and he stole that starting spot from Gus um so I think um Joey's kind of that example of what happens when you don't get deterred from there um I think the organization's plan for next year is still to have you know um, Nilsson and Hogberg in the NHL. And then you'll have that. It's going to be really interesting to watch Joey and Gus go back and forth in the AHL next year. I think next year we'll show a little bit more about what the Sens have in those two players. Um, and they signed Kevin Mandelis. And then there's also Mad Sogard, who was playing in Medicine Hat. Um, I think Kevin will probably play in the East Coast League next season. Um as his first year pro. And I, I think Mads is still pretty young and, and forgive me, I don't have too, too much of a scouting report on either of those two, but um, I would say going, you know, when you look at, you know, their biggest strengths and weaknesses heading into the draft, I like, I think the senator's goaltending pool is, is, is pretty good right now. So going into the draft then, so let's, let's assume that the senders end up with the second and third overall pick, and then they have the middle round pick, wherever that's going to end up being, whatever, whatever happens with the regular season and all that. So do you know a lot about the draft? Because I haven't seen you post that much about it. So I, I, I don't know personally if you know much about the draft prospects and everything like that. Uh, so do you have an idea about, you know, who they want to draft, who they're looking at, who would you pick personally? You know, because me and Martin were talking about it and he he was of the idea that they should just draft two centers with their second and third overall pick kind of and just solidify their depth down the middle for the next you know, decade mm-hmm. plus, and I and I kind of argued no, they should probably grab like Drysdale with that third overall pick after grabbing you know Byfield or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, what were your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, so I I did a mock draft and I've done a few draft stories, um, and that's actually one of the things that you know I, I kind of argued was you know Pierre Dorian has said that they will draft the best player available, um, mm-hmm. but if you get say two or three or even three, four, two, four, um, 
you know, obviously center depth is the most important thing. Center depth, having like a number one center and then adding some more elite skill to the team is, is definitely the priority for the senators coming into this draft. Um, but yeah, that was the one question that I kind of talked about in a few stories actually was, you know, if you get number two, you go with Quinton Byfield. But then at number three, do you draft the Tim Stutzel um, or the Marco Rossi? Um, you know, Stutzel would probably come in at three. You know, I've read that he is the way that he plays the game. He would, you know, some scouts think that he would be a natural center at the National Hockey League level. Mm-hmm. So do you draft two elite centers or do you draft the, you know, without a doubt, he's going to be your number one guy and then add the top defenseman in the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie Drysdale has solidified himself as the guy that you want on the blue line this draft. And okay. I know I think a lot of people say that the Senators – you know, they're locked and loaded on D. You don't need anyone else. But, I mean, when you look at the contracts, like, obviously, Shabbat's locked in. Um, Artem Zub was only signed to a one-year deal. Um, obviously, Nikita Zaitsev has, I think, four more years on his contract. Um, I I personally, on a contender, I don't see Yarosh um, or Lejoie or Anglin being, you know, full-time National Hockey League players on mm-hmm. the Stanley Cup contending what team. Have you, what have um, you heard about Thompson? <clears throat> last, yeah, you ha- like obviously Lassie Thompson is one of their top-tier prospects as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if Jamie Drysdale is not going to be ready this year to play in the National Hockey League. I, I don't think he's going to step in and play right away. So I think if you have the opportunity to add a potentially, you know, top four defenseman, um, I would – probably do it myself um mm-hmm. maybe i'm wrong but i think it's an interesting conversation i think um do you get two elite centers or do you get the best center and the best defenseman and then you know fill out the rest and, and hope you get another late round pick who turns out to be really great like a shane pinto who ends up being an elite forward like do you take that gamble um i think regardless if the senators get the opportunity to pick two of the very best prospects in a deep yeah. draft, like I don't think you can lose. Yeah, they can't really go wrong with the second, third, fourth overall picks, whatever it is. So it's it's not yeah. like you know it's an, it's not like a very controversial conversation to say okay they should just take the best defenseman in the draft instead of the second or third best center in the draft or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like it's not <laughs> it's not yeah. a life or death death situation with the senders. Yeah, but, and, and um, I think I I think that like they're not desperate to add a defenseman either. I think there's definitely teams, if they were in that position, they would jump at it way more. Um, I know the LA Kings are a team that if they were picking third overall, I don't think there's a question of them drafting Jamie Drysdale over Stutzel Mm -hmm. because they need that young elite defenseman way more than the senators would. Um, So yeah, it would be interesting to, you know, be in the, you know, in the war room with the, GM and the AGM and overhear that conversation because like I, I am really interested. Do the senators think that they need one more elite D-man or a is big, the Shabbat Brandstrom Lassie Thompson enough? A big thing with Drysdale too is he's right-handed, which is obviously always in high demand in on the on the back yeah. end, and you don't really yeah get exactly that type of player. Off, I think often. It's interesting because I think their draft decision is going to have to be off of what they think about Logan Brown and Colin White, right? Because if they think Colin well, White's going to be their second line center, do they really need Norris. to draft? 
I or think Josh, Josh Norris, Norris right? would probably. Yeah. I think. I don't. I think Josh Norris would. The way that his trajectory kind of points, um, I think Norris probably has the potential, more potential to be the number two center. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you have like a Colin White as your third line center, um, it would also just take the pressure off. I know Colin had a bit of a difficult season last season, and um, but I, I don't think that's his finished product. I don't think they're losing think, hope on Colin White or Logan Brown. Do you think uh, because they kind of have like Logan Brown, Philip Shalapik, um coming up in center territory do you think colin white could move out to a wing they could try that see if that gets his game going again because yeah, it was kind I of mean, a lot of pressure was... for him to play like by once pajot left and stuff he was kind of like the first line center guy and that's a decent yeah, amount of um... for a 23 year old <laughs> yeah no definitely and um I think like uh, Colin did a good job working on the other parts of his game. Like his numbers weren't necessarily there, but I think he did take some, some good strides in, in having that two way game, which um, DJ Smith has made it really clear is important to him and, and how they want to move forward. Um, there was a point when they did move him out to the wing. Um, I think it was when Logan Brown was called up, I believe, cause, and Anisima was healthy. So you had, and Pajo was still there. So there was Pajot, Anisimov, Tierney, Logan Brown, um, all there. So they they did move um, Colin over to the wing for a little bit just so he could maybe, you know, stop gripping the stick too tight, stop maybe just take away a little part. Because there's more defensive responsibility um, when you're playing that center position. There's a lot more that you have to focus on. Um, So they did take a few of those responsibilities away, hoping that he could maybe find his game again. Um, You know, he didn't have the year that, they had obviously wanted him to, but I think that's, you know, a big conversation that's been happening a lot is, um, and I would just say to fans is like, maybe have some patience. Like I know after this season, there's a lot of fans saying Colin White can be traded and so can Logan Brown. We don't need them anymore. But I would just say um, it's not easy to be a young guy playing in the NHL when your wingers are also new or you're playing with guys who would probably be fourth line wingers on any other team, um, I would probably just say, let's have a bit more patience and see, you know, what their finished product is going to be. Um, yeah, yeah. Because although, no, we're like, in... although Brady, Brady seems old, <laughs> he's still like 20. Yeah. So, and Colin yeah. White is playing with him. And then everybody else he's kind of playing with besides Bobby would be quite young ish. Yeah. Hockey, and hockey they're play. in the NHL, but they're, they're still yeah. developing, right? Yeah. This isn't the finished product. This isn't the Colin White that you're going to have for the entirety of the contract they signed. And and I would probably say, um, you know, the writing is kind of on the wall and in the contract in that sense, because they did sign him to that yes. contract extension. Sure. And I that probably shows that they're not giving up on him anytime soon. For sure. Who, who do you think, yes. uh, who do you think would be the next trade target? out of Ottawa? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, like a Chris Tierney? I feel probably? like... Um, or, uh, I think a lot of that probably depends on what happens in the draft and when that draft happens. Yes. Um, like, I do think, you know, Tierney's an RFA. He's under team control. He'll probably get 
brought back this season because you I'm do even, need some. Yeah, I'm not even saying like, uh, like, I guess they might make little trades here and there, but I'm meaning more of a big trade, like it could be next season or something, like they sign them. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think if you know they re-sign Tierney this year to like a one-year contract, and then by mid-season you find that Josh Norris is up and he's ready. Logan mm-hmm. Brown's taken a good step. Maybe you drafted Quentin Byfield um, and he's, you know, killing it in the NHL already. Then all of a sudden that one-year deal you signed Tierney to is an easy contract to move at the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think predicting trades for next season and, and seasons in the future, I think, is maybe a bit difficult because we don't know what the Senators are. You don't know the contracts yet because they have – I think they only have nine players signed through next season. And yeah. most of them are the, the Brady Kachucks and the Colin Whites and the Thomas Shabbat. So they're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe they bring back a Hainsey and a Borowiecki on one-year deals. And then those are conversations for being clipped to the deadline as they were this year. Um, I think a lot of the options at the deadline that they had this year uh, will probably still be applicable next year, depending who they bring back. I think... Um, Artem Anisimov only has one year left on his deal. And mm-hmm. um, same with Mike Riley. Um, so just given the nature of expiring UFA contracts, those are probably the two more obvious ones who could be moved next year. But as far as like a big blockbuster trade, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> That's like a to be determined based on what they get. Because if they get a Quentin Byfield or a Lafreniere, um, all of a sudden you have some pretty expendable players. And I hate saying that after talking about, you know, the human element of the deadline and that these are people. <laughs> it's but, still business. <laughs> um, it's the reality of the business, right? If, if yes. Quentin Byfield gets drafted and he's, you know, their number one center, that has a pretty dramatic shift on the organization. Yeah. So Eric? you were just talking about, you know, all the goaltending depth that Ottawa <clears> has. <throat> so they have a mid-round pick and kind of, you know, depending on the mock draft you look at, Askarov's looking like he's going to be going anywhere in that, you know, I'd say 20 to 15 range is what I see most yeah. of the time, which is looking like where their pick will be. So you, and I've seen a lot of talk from many Ottawa senders who DM us or comment on our posts and stuff and them saying, I think Ottawa would take Askarov. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's a possibility. You know, I, I, I think it was Craig Button who was talking about it actually. And he, and Askarov has been, you know, touted as the best goalie prospect since Carey Price. Um, but you see him drop so far in a lot of prospect rankings because he didn't really have a great world junior tournament. Um, so that hurt that ranking for him. Um, and then it's also just a really deep draft, um, really forward heavy draft. I think if you have the opportunity to draft a goaltender who is going to be, you know, blow away all your other prospects, um, you know, when you look at how you win in the NHL, a lot of these teams have a 1B or a 1A, 1B kind of goalie tandem. So I think if the Senators believe that Askarov could turn out to be a Carey Price-like goaltender and they have that Islanders pick, I don't see why you would pass up on that um, unless, you know, Jack Quinn is still available and they want the local guy and they think he can, you know, be a big difference maker. But certainly I think in the 15 to 20 range, I think it's a possibility. And I think it's one of the senators, obviously he's obviously going to be on their, on their radar. I think um, if he's as good as some of these scouts are saying. 
So what are your thoughts on some, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on some other uh, Ottawa Senators prospects. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on two uh, wingers within their system, uh, Alex Fermen and Drake Batherson. I think they have very similar kind of outlooks. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on on both of them because I think their futures are really interesting right now, especially um, Drake Batherson because he's kind of at that age right now where he kind of needs to make it or not make it, I think, in my opinion. You know, like 22 is kind of when you see players either make the NHL or not make the NHL. So I kind of just want to get your thoughts on both of them. Yeah, with um, with Drake and Alex, yeah, I think they're um, two really interesting prospects and they're two of the top prospects in the organization. Um, you know, as expected when Drake was in the American Hockey League, he put up a ton of numbers and, and you know, he probably could have been in a position to lead the league if he was in the American League all season. Um, he did have a few call-ups with the NHL. Um, I, I think that, and, and this was something that Troy Mann said to me as well, you know, Drake Batherson has nothing left to prove in the American Hockey League. He has proven that he is a good professional hockey player, um, but it's going to be up to him to um, actually take and keep a spot in the National Hockey League next season. Um, I think there was a spot penciled in for him this training camp and and he obviously made it out of camp and and he lost that spot pretty quickly because he wasn't playing, you know, his game. So I think, you know, he'll have to have a really good off season, get a bit stronger. He is still only 21. He may have just turned 22, but um, he's only 21 years old. Um, Forgive me if I am, if I'm messing up the age. So he's still young and he still has some time, but certainly he's shown that, you know, he can rip up the AHL if he wants to, but that's not, the goal obviously so um it'll be about like the finer details with drake and that's something that troy man is really focused on with him is you know he's an offensively skilled player um but that's nothing if he can't get the puck and keep the puck at the national hockey league level so it'll just be you know the little things like tracking pucks and in stick details getting the puck back being strong enough to hold on to it um so, yeah, that's the one thing with Drake is if he has a really good offseason and, and, you know, he takes that spot, like, I, I think he'll be a good NHL player. Um, Formington's interesting because I don't think Alex is a – he's has elite speed at any level he plays at, and I think that's something that's really obvious when you watch him play. Um, when he came in, I think Belleville had hoped that he would give them around, like, a 15-goal pace, be a really good penalty killer – um, and obviously he exceeded those offensive expectations. So they're a little bit different in that sense, whereas Drake is the one that they know is always going to be offensively gifted. And and Alex kind of su- not surprised because they know he's talented, but he did kind of surprise people with the amount that he was able to score. Um, you know, he had the fastest skater competition. He scored 27 goals. Um, and, and Troy did tell me that he believes that um, Alex is the most ready winger on the team to make the NHL as early as next season. So um, I would think that that's two really great wingers in Drake and Alex Foreman. So, so the Ottawa Senators could possibly have like Josh Norris, Drake Batherson, Alex Foreman, <laughs> Dalkers, Logan Brown, <laughs> Shalapic <laughs> next year, and Brandstrom on their team next year from the Belleville Senators. It's possible. Um, (laughs) I think that I I think that Troy think Troy told me that Brandstrom 
he thinks Brandstrom needs another chunk of games in the American Hockey League. So I don't I don't know if he'll be on the team out of training camp. Um, and again, I think a lot of that depends on you know what Pierre Dorian and and Peter McTavish and in the the front office want. Um, if they feel like things getting cut short this year means that they want their um, AHL prospects to have a little bit more time in the American Hockey League, maybe they don't make it out of training camp. I think um, obviously if Josh comes into camp and is playing like the best center there, you know, they're mm-hmm. not going to say, no, you need a few more games. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the guys who are the most ready are Norris, Batherson, Foreman. Those are the ones who are, you know, 100%, um, not 100%, but they're the most ready from a skill perspective. Um, but they have to put in the work this summer and they have to earn that spot out of training camp. The other prospects probably need a bit more time, but are, you know, a, a very real threat for a call-up uh, midseason. It could, it could be interesting to see Norris and uh, to Chuck back together because they played like in their under 18 year or something and have yeah they played, played at the you know. u.s um they played in the u.s development yeah. program and uh they played for uh team usa at the world juniors and yeah. um they also I, played on a line together when norris got called up it was uh, kachuk norris and bobby ryan i always forget was it is it norris or was it the guy they traded uh powers or bowers um that was supposedly chain bowers of, yeah was one of uh brady's best friends or something i mean i'm not totally sure about <laughs> bowers but i know josh norris and brady are very very good friends okay. um josh so norris was, was josh, norris. So josh got josh got drafted in 2017 and then brady was the 2018 draft and um josh was at the draft with like brady's family there's a picture of Josh in his like polo shirt and Brady in the Sens jersey at the draft. <laughs> so I, it's probably Josh nice. Norris. Yeah. Yes, likely Josh Norris. Um, yeah. that, that trade's looking very good for them. Josh Norris looking yeah. like a could be a very good second line center and whatever they get with that pick from, uh, from the Sharks. That, um, yes. That's right now the number three. Yeah. Yes. That. It's looking like a very good trade. So, so I remember you said on Keeping Carlson, you believe that their outlook for playoffs is two to three years away or so? Yeah, that was kind of like what um, in the fan survey that we did, that was one of the things that we found was fans believe that the Senators could make the playoffs within two years, but they probably won't win a playoff series for three years. Um, yeah. And I think, like I said, like I've said a few times, like a, I feel like a broken record, but I think a lot of it hinges on the draft. Um, mm-hmm. If you draft a guy who's going to step into the National Hockey League and automatically make a difference, then that expedites your timeline a little bit. Um, and, you know, if this proposal that the NHL made to have the draft in June with the, with the changes to the draft lottery happens and they're guaranteed two of the top four picks in the draft, then that's a very real possibility that the timeline for this rebuild is going to get a little bit expedited because you're getting two high, high elite draft picks in a, in a very good draft. Um, mm-hmm. I, but yeah, I would say making the playoffs um, is probably two years away winning. Yeah. I don't think you're going to win in two years, but um, I could see, 
you know, if they have a good draft and they develop these prospects well, within two years, you'll probably have the the Shane Pintos and the JBDs, the Lassie Thompsons, whoever you get in this draft already, a lot of the, you know, bigger kind of bad contracts and expiring UFA, RFA deals are going to be gone within the next two years. Um, you're going to have a younger, higher skilled, deeper NHL roster. Um, yeah, and the reality of roster. making the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. And the reality of making the playoffs will be obviously greater within two years for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Eric's message the group Luke, if he's tr- attempting no. to come back or not. Um, well, he's, but in, I, he's in Skype, but I don't think he's in uh, Zencaster. So he's just, <laughs> he's just listening in. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I just don't have any, I have no more questions that I want to ask unless Luke, you have anything to No, ask. I guess. Yeah. I guess though, the one last question before we kind of end it is, um, you know, you talked a lot about at the beginning how there's women that you looked up to in the industry to kind of uh, get a sense of, of what it took. But, um, you know, I'm not sure for our, our Instagram followers what our percentage of, of listeners is of women, but I think it'd be really cool to kind of give that perspective of being a woman in hockey um, and how that's kind of had an effect on your role, your relationship within the industry, um, and kind of some of the things that you've learned through that just to take away for, with our listeners. Yeah, for sure. I think um, that's a good question. Um, I think every woman in hockey's experience is different. Um, So I don't want my experience to be taken as, you know, this is, you know, all encompassing and what everyone kind of happens. Because I think it's different in every city or NHL market that you're in and, you know, the people that are around you. Um, In Ottawa, um, there's, I think, I'm probably the only female that's there on a every single day, full-time basis. Um, there is um, two other women that are, I think it's only two other women. So um, Lisa Wallace from Canadian Press covers the team. She's at all the games. Um, and then there's um, Glenna who is with uh, Sportsnet and she's always there for, you know, the scrums and such. So um, it's, you know, I'm lucky that there's other women around and, and Lisa actually helped me a lot on my first day at training camp um she was lovely um and and glenn is great as well um but i think from like a full time and traveling with the team basis um i'm probably there's there's a lot of times when i'm in the, the locker room by myself and i'm the only female there um i think where maybe it, it, you know i i haven't had too many issues i think maybe sometimes the any kind of time where um things have been difficult for me is not just because I'm a female in hockey, but it's also compounded with the fact that I was in my first year in the NHL. So I was, you know, mm-hmm. a rookie, a young, very young. I'm, I'm only 25. I think a lot of people know I was in university two years ago. So um, it's kind of that combination of young first year, um, only female around all the time. Um, and so I think the only, the only times where it maybe impacted me doing my job is where um, you're very aware of the fact that say um for example you know you're trying to build that relationship and and have that conversation with a player um that's not so much on the record you just say hey how's it going how are you because those are conversations that happen in locker rooms you know not everything is you know putting the microphone in their face you you know you, you talk to them like a human being um but you know i'm very aware or at least i was at first and i was very aware and maybe 
overly self-conscious about the fact that, you know, say me sitting next to Mark Borowiecki or Brady Kachuk and having a laugh or chatting about something looks very different than one of my like older male counterparts doing the same thing. Um, so I think sometimes I was maybe a little bit self-conscious of, you know, I want to make sure that I'm professional and I look professional. I don't want anyone thinking the wrong thing, whatever that may be, even though I'm just trying to do my job. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas it's a little bit different for, you know, an, an older, more veteran gentleman to be doing the same thing. Um, but, you know, in Ottawa, everyone's been been quite helpful. Um, all the players are very respectful. Like I can't say that I've had um, really any problems being, mm-hmm. you know, a female in hockey covering the Ottawa Senators, I, I feel. And I know that that's not the reality for for some women in the industry, but I do feel lucky um, to be in the market that I am. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually have one, one, one more question. Yeah. Um, my, my one buddy was just wondering if there's like a, because the athletic uh, and is a little different than other more traditional market uh, media outlets. Do you have like a, like a rivalry kind of with like Ian Mendez and like Bruce Garriott and the other beat reporters that aren't that athletic or <laughs> is it like um, more of a working relationship? <laughs> Ian Mendez is my arch nemesis. Let that, <laughs> let the record show. You can tweet okay. that. You can make that the headline of this podcast. Um, <laughs> Ian Mendez is a demon. Um, no. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't say that there's a rivalry. No, I think Ian is, um, Ian's lovely. He, he's helped me in, in a lot of ways this season. Um, you know, Bruce and I, we are usually a lot of times, you know, it's just me and Bruce on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Bruce will, will share a cab from the airport or, um, you know, everyone's been very helpful. Um, I, I, obviously the athletics a little bit different, so you know, post game when everyone's rushing to, to file their stories, you know, I get to just go home because we don't really focus on, you know, game recaps and post game content, um, which it's obviously a bit of a different dynamic in the way that we do our jobs. Um, you know, when I'm in the locker room at practice, I'm not necessarily in the scrum and, and contributing to the day to day beat that's happening. I'm kind of off doing my own thing a lot of times. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's created any kind of rivalry um, mm-hmm. other than with Mendez. <laughs> what's, uh, what's, uh, Bruce, what's Bruce kind of like? Uh, he's been with the Sens for, not with the Sens, but following the Sens for ever. Yeah, I think he's been covering the team, I think, since the first season. So Bruce is definitely, he knows a lot about the team. He's yeah. been around a heck of a lot longer than I have. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I said, Bruce and I are usually the only ones, not the only ones, but there was a few road trips I was on where it was just Bruce and myself. And, you know, he he sits next to me in the press box. We were little neighbors. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it, he's a, he's lovely. He's obviously been doing this for a long time. And I think sure. everyone's been super helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, Bruce is funny. He's a, <laughs> He's a funny guy. I think a lot of people that know him I think a lot of times you know people like everyone he's the one that I think some people maybe have like lighthearted fun with um you know and we're all just watching practice and stuff um but no Bruce is cool we we've 
yeah, I like Bruce a lot. He's good. Um, like I said, he's been there for a long time and, uh, sure. I think everyone's, you know, pretty great on the beach for sure. I'm lucky in that sense. There's it's not like 50 like... people covering this team. So you get to know everyone. Yeah. Um, like a lot better than you would if you were say covering the Leafs or the Canadians or something where there's homey. so many more people. Yeah. It's more homey. <laughs> um, yeah. If anybody's an expert, it's probably Bruce, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Bruce probably knows everybody like just walking around anywhere with Bruce like I feel like he's the guy who stops like every few minutes because he just like knows everybody that's around and I'm the new person who's like I don't know anybody (laughs) but that's what happens when you put in 27 plus years working on something right yeah older than all of us (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's carved out a good career for himself um I have no further questions. I like to thank you a lot for coming on. This has been really good for our podcast and we've really enjoyed mm-hmm. having awesome. it. And I'm sure Eric would say the same thing if he could. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. But Haley, why don't, why don't you kind of uh, say where our fans and followers could uh, find you um, and kind of get, promote yourself a little bit. <laughs> I, this is always the hardest question for me. I, I always forget what my Twitter handle is. Um, <laughs> but all my all my stories I write for the Athletic, so my stories are all on the Athletic NHL or the Athletic Ottawa. Um, and I think my Twitter is just Haley underscore Salvian. Um, H a i l e y is the correct spelling of Haley. Um, and then the last name is S a l v i a n. So that's where I post most of my stories, um, as well as at the Athletic Ottawa. Perfect. Well, if that is uh, the correct handle, we'll be putting it in the description as well. Um, so all of our fans can follow that. That is the correct one? Okay, yes, perfect. So uh, they can all follow you there, and we'll definitely link uh, your athletic bio or, or articles and your Twitter in the, in the podcast so everyone can find it there. But Haley, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, guys. Imani wouldn't be here if it wasn't for St. Jude and everything was perfect until that day when she was five weeks old. So there was a fairly large and aggressive brain tumor, but St. Jude Children's Research Hospital gave us the ultimate gift in this world, which was hope restored. And she's tumor-free now. We came as two desperate parents, uh, and they saved our daughter's life. Visit stjude.org slash stjude won't stop now to become a partner in hope and get the new We Won't Stop t-shirt.